This is a download from the Wireless Theatre Company. Hector Hugh Munro wrote under the pen name of Saki. He was born in 1870 in Malaya and brought up in Devonshire from the age of two by two maiden aunts. They apparently hated each other and would compete to be each more strict and fierce with a child than the other. This may account for the cruelty of some of his stories. In 1914, he enlisted as a private, having refused a commission. He never really came to terms with authority. Nonetheless, he was promoted to sergeant and was killed by a sniper's bullet in 1916. His last words, recorded by a fellow soldier, were, Put that bloody cigarette out! Followed by the sound of a shot. His dark, comic stories are his lasting legacy. Mrs. Packletide's Tiger It was Mrs. Packletide's pleasure and intention that she should shoot a tiger. Not that the lust to kill had suddenly descended on her, or that she felt that she would leave India safer and more wholesome than she had found it, with one fraction less of wild beast per million of inhabitants. The compelling motive for her sudden deviation towards the footsteps of Nimrod was the fact that Luna Bimberton had recently been carried eleven miles in an aeroplane by an Algerian aviator and talked of nothing else. Only a personally procured tiger skin and a heavy harvest of press photographs could successfully counter that sort of thing. Mrs. Packletide had already arranged in her mind the lunch she would give at her house in Curzon Street, ostensibly in Luna Bimberton's honour, with a tiger skin rug occupying most of the foreground and all of the conversation. She had already designed in her mind the tiger-claw brooch that she was going to give Luna Bimberton on her next birthday. In a world that is supposed to be chiefly swayed by hunger and by love, Mrs. Packletide was an exception. Her movements and motives were largely governed by dislike of Luna Bimberton. Circumstances proved propitious. Mrs. Packletide had offered a thousand rupees for the opportunity of shooting a tiger without overmuch risk or exertion, and it so happened that a neighbouring village could boast of being the favoured rendezvous of an animal of respectable antecedents, which had been driven by the increasing infirmities of age to abandon game-killing and confine its appetite to the smaller domestic animals. The prospect of earning the thousand rupees had stimulated the sporting and commercial instinct of the villagers. Children were posted day and night on the outskirts of the local jungle to head the tiger back in the unlikely event of his attempting to roam away to fresh hunting grounds. And the cheaper kind of goats were left about with elaborate carelessness to keep him satisfied with his present quarters. The one great anxiety was lest he should die of old age before the date appointed for the Memsab's shoot. Mothers, carrying their babies home through the jungle after the day's work in the fields, hushed their singing 
lest they might curtail the restful sleep of the venerable herd-robber. The great night duly arrived, moonlit and cloudless. A platform had been constructed in a comfortable and conveniently placed tree, and thereon crouched Mrs. Packletide and her paid companion, Miss Mebbin. A goat, gifted with a particularly persistent bleat, such as even a partially deaf tiger might be reasonably expected to hear on a still night, was tethered at the correct distance. With an accurately sighted rifle and a thumbnail pack of patient cards, the sportswoman awaited the coming of the quarry. "'I suppose we are in some danger,' said Miss Mebbin. She was not actually nervous about the wild beast, but she had a morbid dread of performing an atom more service than she had been paid for. "'Nonsense,' said Mrs. Packletide. "'It's a very old tiger. It couldn't spring up here even if it wanted to.' "'If it's an old tiger, I think you ought to get it cheaper. A thousand rupees is a lot of money.' Louisa Mebbin adopted a protective elder-sister attitude towards money in general, irrespective of nationality or denomination. Her energetic intervention had saved many a rouble from dissipating itself in tips in some Moscow hotel, and francs and centimes clung to her instinctively under circumstances which would have driven them headlong from less sympathetic hands. Her speculations as to the market depreciation of tiger remnants were cut short by the appearance on the scene of the animal itself. As soon as it caught sight of the tethered goat, it lay flat on the earth, seemingly less from a desire to take advantage of all available cover than for the purpose of snatching a short rest before commencing the grand attack. "'I believe it's ill,' said Louisa Mebbin loudly in Hindustani, for the benefit of the village headman, who was in ambush in a neighbouring tree. "'Hush!' said Mrs. Packletide. And at that moment the tiger commenced ambling towards his victim. "'Now! Now!' urged Miss Mebbin, with some excitement. "'If he doesn't touch the goat, we needn't pay for it.' The bait was extra. The rifle flashed out with a loud report, and the great tawny beast sprang to one side, and then rolled over in the stillness of death. In a moment a crowd of excited natives had swarmed onto the scene, and their shouting speedily carried the glad news to the village, where a thumping of tom-toms took up the chorus of triumph, and their triumph and rejoicing found a ready echo in the heart of Mrs. Packletide. Already that luncheon party in Curzon Street seemed immeasurably nearer. It was Louisa Mebbin who drew attention to the fact that the goat was in death throes from a mortal bullet wound, while no trace of the rifle's deadly work could be found on the tiger. Evidently the wrong animal had been hit, and the beast of prey had succumbed to heart failure, caused by the sudden report of the rifle, accelerated by senile decay. Mrs. Packletide was pardonably annoyed at the discovery, but at any rate she was the possessor of a dead tiger, and the villagers, anxious for their thousand rupees, gladly connived at the fiction that she had shot the beast, and Miss Mebbin was a paid companion. Therefore did Mrs. Packletide face the cameras with a light heart, and her picture frame reached from the pages of the Texas Weekly Snapshot to the illustrated Monday supplement of the Novel Vremya. As for Luna Bimberton, she refused to look at an illustrated paper for weeks, 
and her letter of thanks for the gift of a tiger-claw brooch was a model of repressed emotions. The luncheon party she declined. There are limits beyond which repressed emotions become dangerous. From Curzon Street, the tiger-skin rug travelled down to the manor-house, and was duly inspected and admired by the county. And it seemed a fitting and appropriate thing when Mrs. Packletide went to the county costume ball in the character of Diana. She refused to fall in, however, with Clovis's tempting suggestion of a primeval dance-party at which everyone should wear the skins of beasts they had recently slain. "'I should be in rather a baby-bunting condition,' confessed Clovis, "'with a miserable rabbit-skin or two to wrap up in. "'But then,' he added, with a rather malicious glance at Diana's proportions, "'my figure is quite as good as that Russian dancing-boy's.' "'How amused everyone would be if they knew what really happened,' "'said Louisa Mebbin a few days after the ball. "'What do you mean?' asked Mrs. Packletide quickly. "'How you shot the goat and frightened the tiger to death,' said Miss Mebbin, with her disagreeably pleasant laugh. "'No one would believe it,' said Mrs. Packletide, her face changing colour as rapidly as though it were going through a book of patterns before post-time. "'Luna Bimberton would,' said Miss Mebbin. Mrs. Packletide's face settled on an unbecoming shade of greenish-white. "'You surely wouldn't give me away?' she asked. "'I've seen a weekend cottage near Dorking that I should rather like to buy,' said Miss Mebbin, with seeming irrelevance. Six hundred and eighty, freehold. Quite a bargain. Only I don't happen to have the money.' Louisa Mebbin's pretty weekend cottage, christened by her Le Fauve, and gay in summertime with its garden borders of tiger-lilies, is the wonder and admiration of her friends. It's a marvel how Louisa manages to do it, is the general verdict. Mrs. Packletide indulges in no more big game shooting. The incidental expenses are so heavy, she confides to inquiring friends. THE JESTING OF ARLINGTON STRINGHAM Arlington Stringham made a joke in the House of Commons. It was a thin house, and a very thin joke, something about the Anglo-Saxon race having a great many angles. It is possible that it was unintentional, but a fellow member who did not wish it to be supposed that he was asleep because his eyes were shut, laughed. One or two of the papers noted a laugh in brackets, and another, which was notorious for the carelessness of its political news, mentioned laughter. Things often begin in that way. "'Arlington made a joke in the house last night,' said Eleanor Stringham to her mother. "'In all the years we've been married, neither of us has made jokes, and I don't like it now. I'm afraid it's the beginning of the rift in the lute.' "'What lute?' said her mother. "'It's a quotation,' said Eleanor. To say that anything was a quotation was an excellent method in Eleanor's eyes for withdrawing it from discussion, just as you could always defend indifferent lamb late in the season by saying, "'It's mutton.' 
and of course Arlington Stringham continued to tread the thorny path of conscious humour into which fate had beckoned him. The country's looking very green, but after all, that's what it's there for, he remarked to his wife two days later. That's very modern and I dare say very clever, but I'm afraid it's wasted on me, she observed coldly. If she had known how much effort it had cost him to make the remark, she might have greeted it in a kinder spirit. It is the tragedy of human endeavour that it works so often unseen and unguessed. Arlington said nothing, not from injured pride, but because he was thinking hard for something to say. Eleanor mistook his silence for an assumption of tolerant superiority, and her anger prompted her to a further jibe. "'You had better tell it to Lady Isabel. I have no doubt she would appreciate it.' Lady Isabel was seen everywhere with a fawn-coloured collie, at a time when everyone else kept nothing but Pekingese. And she had once eaten four green apples at an afternoon tea in the botanical gardens, so she was widely credited with a rather unpleasant wit. The censorious said she slept in a hammock and understood Yeats's poems, but her family denied both stories. "'The rift is widening to an abyss,' said Eleanor to her mother that afternoon. "'I should not tell that to anyone.' remarked her mother, after long reflection. "'Naturally I should not talk about it very much,' said Eleanor. "'But why shouldn't I mention it to anyone?' "'Because you can't have an abyss in a lute. "'There isn't room.'" Eleanor's outlook on life did not improve as the afternoon wore on. The page-boy had brought from the library by mere and wold instead of, by mere chance, the book which everyone denied having read. The unwelcome substitute appeared to be a collection of nature notes, contributed by the author to the pages of some northern weekly, and when one had been prepared to plunge with disapproving mind into a regrettable chronicle of ill-spent lives, it was intensely irritating to read, "'The dainty yellowhammers are now with us, and flaunt their jaundiced livery from every bush and hillock.' Besides, the thing was so obviously untrue. Either there must be hardly any bushes or hillocks in those parts, or the country must be fearfully overstocked with yellow hammers. The thing scarcely seemed worth telling such a lie about. And the page-boy stood there, with his sleekly brushed and parted hair, and his air of chaste and callous indifference to the desires and passions of the world. Eleanor hated boys and she would have liked to have whipped this one long and often. It was, perhaps, the yearning of a woman who had no children of her own. She turned at random to another paragraph. Lie quietly concealed in the fern and bramble in the gap by the old rowan tree, and you may see, almost every evening during early summer, a pair of lesser white-throats creeping up and down the nettles and hedge-growth that mask their nesting-place the insufferable monotony of the proposed recreation. Eleanor would not have watched the most brilliant performance at His Majesty's Theatre for a single evening under such uncomfortable circumstances, and to be asked to watch lesser white-throats creeping up and down a nettle almost every evening during the height of the season struck her as an imputation on her intelligence that was positively offensive.' 
impatiently. She transferred her attention to the dinner menu, which the boy had thoughtfully brought in as an alternative to the more solid literary fare. Rabbit curry met her eye, and the lines of disapproval deepened on her already puckered brow. The cook was a great believer in the influence of environment, and nourished an obstinate conviction that if you brought rabbit and curry powder together in one dish, a rabbit curry would be the result. And Clovis and the odious Bertie Van Tahn were coming to dinner. Surely, thought Eleanor, if Arlington knew how much she had had that day to try her, he would refrain from joke-making. At dinner that night, it was Eleanor herself who mentioned the name of a certain statesman who may be decently covered under the disguise of X. X, said Arlington Stringham, has the soul of a meringue. It was a useful remark to have on hand, because it applied equally well to four prominent statesmen of the day, which quadrupled the opportunities for using it. "'Meringues haven't got souls,' said Eleanor's mother. "'It's a mercy that they haven't,' said Clovis. "'They would be always losing them, "'and people like my aunt would get up missions to meringues "'and say it was wonderful how much one could teach them "'and how much more one could learn from them.' "'What could you learn from a meringue?' asked Eleanor's mother. "'My aunt has been known to learn humility from an ex-viceroy,' said Clovis. "'I wish Cook would learn to make curry, or have the sense to leave it alone,' said Arlington, suddenly and savagely. Eleanor's face softened. It was like one of his old remarks, in the days when there was no abyss between them. It was during the debate on the Foreign Office vote that Stringham made his great remark that the people of Crete unfortunately make more history than they can consume locally— it was not brilliant, but it came in the middle of a dull speech, and the house was quite pleased with it. Old gentlemen with bad memories said it reminded them of Disraeli. It was Eleanor's friend, Gertrude Ilpton, who drew her attention to Arlington's newest outbreak. Eleanor, in these days, avoided the morning papers. I suppose it's very modern, and I suppose very clever, she observed. "'Of course it's clever,' said Gertrude. "'All Lady Isabel's sayings are clever, and luckily they bear repeating.' "'Are you sure it's one of her sayings?' asked Eleanor. "'My dear, I've heard her say it dozens of times.' "'So that is where he gets his humour," said Eleanor slowly, and the hard lines deepened round her mouth. The death of Eleanor Stringham, from an overdose of chloral, occurring at the end of a rather uneventful season, excited a certain amount of unobtrusive speculation. Clovis, who perhaps exaggerated the importance of curry in the home, hinted at domestic sorrow. And, of course, Arlington never knew. It was the tragedy of his life that he should miss the fullest effect of his jesting. That was a Lisping Dog production for the Wireless Theatre Company. The reader was Greg Page.